The following message is by Dr. Derek Brown, pastor and elder at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. So let us turn to Hebrews chapter 3, and as we're turning there, I just want to help us get back into the context of Hebrews. I really do appreciate how we are, me and Cliff are able to go between Luke and Hebrews, gives us opportunities to meditate and reflect on our respective books that we're preaching throughout the weeks and even several weeks leading up to the preaching of it. And I hope you've appreciated it too. I think it gives this congregation a rich variety of the scripture, gospel, epistle, and then in other areas of the church, Bible studies, we can study other areas. But I hope on Sunday mornings you're enjoying this going between Luke and, and Hebrews. I know for my own part, I've enjoyed listening to Luke and then studying Hebrews. But what we need to do, as I haven't preached in Hebrews the past few weeks, we need to jump back into the context and get relocated, as it were. So let's do that. We're in chapter 3, verses 1 through 11 today. Previously, in a previous message, we are in chapter 2. And the author of Hebrews ends that chapter by reminding us that Jesus Christ is our high priest. He's going to introduce that concept of Jesus being the high priest in chapter 2. He's going to come back to it in chapter 5. But that high priesthood was important and it was built upon a reality that Jesus became fully man, truly man. The Son of God can only substitute for humans if in fact he was a human and he indeed, praise God, he was in every way. In every way, the Lord Jesus Christ became man. The Son of God became man so that he could die for man, so he could substitute for man. By becoming a man, he also becomes a merciful and faithful high priest who now can provide permanent and perfect atonement. And atonement just means covering of sin. He covers it completely. It can never be brought up again because it has been covered. All of your sin covered by the death of Jesus who died for his people as their high priest. Going into the heavenly holy of holies, the Son of God takes his own blood and splatters it upon the altar there so then that we can come, though sinful, now we can come to our Father's very throne room covered in the blood of Jesus and now able to address him as Father. And even as chapter 4 will say, go to that throne of grace when we need help. So that's what chapter 2 is all about. Jesus is continuing that theme of being superior to the angels that we began in chapter 1. Jesus is superior to the angels because he became a man, because he is man. And for that reason, he is able to become our substitute. And praise God for that. We're going to celebrate that today, even in communion. The Son of God became man. No other faith, no other religion offers such a glorious set of truths that God himself takes upon our own human nature to die in our place. As we come to chapter 3, the author of Hebrews connects what he had told us and taught us in chapter 2 about the humanity of Jesus, about the high priesthood of Jesus, the substitution of Jesus, by saying, therefore. So he's continuing with his argument. He is going to give us a command here in chapter 3, verse 1. He's going to give us another command in chapter 3, verse 8. And then he's going to give us two more commands later in the chapter. A a total of four commands, and I'm going to actually structure these next two messages around those four commands. The first two today and the second two next week as we study verses 12 
through six, uh, 12 through uh, 19 of chapter 3. But he connects us with the previous chapter, and he's going to tell us something now, building upon that previous chapter, and the command is going to be consider Jesus. That's the command. You can write it down. If you don't have a bulletin, you can write it down in your notes. Consider Jesus. Now, I don't know about you. I, I, for me, when I hear the word consider, for some reason, I don't know why. I don't know where this came from. But it just seems to have a connotation of like, eh, you can think about him if you want. I don't know where that came from because actually the English word is defined as thinking carefully about something. So I don't know if it's my education or where I grew up in Montana or what. But hearing that word consider, I just, I just hear it and I'd be like, eh, you can think about Jesus if you want to, but it's not really that. That's not what the English word means, but that's the connotation I have. Uh, the NIV actually translates it well. Consider is fine if you don't have that connotation in your mind like I do. Like I said, the English word is, tran- uh, is, is defined as thinking carefully about something. But the NIV trans- translates it like this. I like this. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. So if you do have that connotation like I do, if you grew up in Montana and you're strange like that, then, uh, then just follow what the, the, the NIV does. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. The command here is to meditate on Jesus. To think about Jesus Christ. And not Jesus in the abstract. He gives us actually two specific facets of his redemptive work that we're to meditate on. Actually, we'll find out that this meditation is going to help us persevere in the faith, but we're to think carefully about, fix our eyes, fix our thoughts on Jesus, to consider him, consider him in his area of apostleship and high priesthood. But before I do that, I want to ask the question, to whom does this command apply? The command is consider Jesus, but who is to consider Jesus? And the reason this is important is because there are some interpretations of the book of Hebrews that suggest that the author is writing to multiple audiences. There's the Christians, but then there's the almost Christians, and there's the apostate Christians, and there's the backslidden Christians, and you kind of have to figure out as you go along who he's referring to. I've been trying to make the argument since chapter 1, even before we started this series, in the introduction, arguing that we don't need to do that hermeneutical gymnastics. We don't need to be uh, bouncing back and forth between audiences. You know who he's talking to? He's talking to believers. Okay? And chapter 3, verse 1 should make that abundantly clear. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. He's talking to believers. And this is an important piece for helping us interpret both verse 6, which is going to be a little tricky, and verse 14 of chapter 3, which is going to be a little tricky as well. But I get, I get ahead of myself. What are we supposed to consider about Jesus? This is a, a reference to he's instructing Christians. What are Christians, believers, supposed to consider about Jesus? We're to consider his that he is the apostle and high priest of our confession. And here confession is not some big long statement of faith. This is simply their faith in Jesus Christ. They are confessing, they have confessed that Jesus is their Lord, he has died for them, and they are looking forward to that reward that they will receive as belonging to Jesus, as believing in Jesus, a reward that is promised in the gospel. You believe, you're forgiven of your sins, and heaven awaits you. The smiles of a heavenly father await you. They confess that Jesus is Lord, that there is only one God, and they believe in him, and they trust in him, and he is true, and he is real. This is their confession. And Jesus Christ is the apostle and high priest of their confession. He's the content of it. He is the object of it. 
Not some mere abstraction or some doctrine out there somewhere, but a person risen from the dead. Lord of all, the one who sustains this universe by a, a mere word, as Hebrews chapter 1 says. And we can understand why he says high priest, because we talked about that last week, and we're going to talk about it again in chapter 5. Jesus is the one, like the Old priest or the Old Testament high priest, he's the one who stepped into the Holy of Holies and offered the sacrifice of himself to atone for his people. We got that. All right? But then you read apostle and you're like, huh? Because Jesus had apostles. And so what does it mean that Jesus is the apostle of our confession? And we might be a little confused. might be, seem to you be a little confusing. I don't think we need to be confused because apostle just means sent out one. And John, the apostle John, uses this word many times in his gospel to refer to Jesus as the one whom God has sent out into the world in order to accomplish all that redemption required in order for Jesus to fulfill all the covenant promises for God's people. Jesus is sent out to do that. He is the apostle. He can have connotations of leadership. He is the, the forerunner, you might say. He's the one who's been sent out from God. And in light of their temptation to be pulled away from the new covenant, remember the author of Hebrews is writing to a group of people who are a group of Jewish believers who are being coerced to come away from the old covenant or the new covenant into the old covenant. They're being tempted to draw away from the new covenant of Jesus Christ and go back into the old covenant of Moses and the Old Testament sacrifices. But he wants them to dwell on Jesus because the more you dwell on Jesus, the more you realize that the old covenant has nothing more to offer. The more you dwell on Jesus, you realize there is no system of salvation. There is no other system of salvation that can truly save you. How do you keep people in the faith? You keep telling them about Jesus. Because the more they see Jesus, the more they realize that there's no other place to go for salvation. Jesus Christ all the time. If you can continue to put Jesus Christ before your own eyes of faith and before the eyes of the faith of the congregation, you're going to have people who persevere because they continue to see Jesus. They continue to see him as true and real and they continue to realize that the, the other religions of the world and the new covenant or the old covenant in this context have nothing more to offer. The old covenant in itself is empty, void, Useless, which is a remarkable thing to say. And if it wasn't in the Bible, it would be hard to say, quite honestly. But we'll see that the author of Hebrews actually calls the Old Covenant obsolete later. And that's strong language. Especially because it was God himself who delivered the Old Covenant, right? I mean, wow, that's, those are strong words about God's own covenant that he delivered to Israel. So, if the reality is that Jesus has come and now that old covenant is obsolete, what does that say about every other religion in the world? God is saying that the very thing that I delivered to Israel millennia ago is obsolete. Where else are you going to find salvation if not in Jesus Christ? But the author must exalt Jesus Christ over someone specific particularly Moses, because of his connection with the Old Covenant, because of how sorely tempted these believers were to go back to the Old Covenant. So he needs to compare Jesus to Moses. Why would you need to compare Jesus to Moses in order to make the case that Jesus in the New Covenant is better than the Old Covenant? Because Moses was the Old Covenant. I mean, if you wanted to put it 
real straightforwardly. He is the one who received the old covenant from God, the Mosaic, it's called the Mosaic covenant. He receives this covenant from God. God speaks to him face to face, mouth to mouth. He's, he's more close to Moses than anyone else. He speaks to Moses, he gives them the covenant, then Moses delivers the covenant to Israel. Moses is in charge of writing all the old covenant documents. I mean, Moses is the man, really, is what it comes down to. Moses was faithful to God as God's leader in Israel. It says here, it says, we're to consider Jesus, he's the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful, or who was faithful to him who appointed him, namely God. Jesus is faithful to God who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all of God's house. Moses was faithful. And he was the figure to whom the Jews looked and who they linked themselves with. Therefore, if you can show that Jesus is better than and worthy of more glory than and superior to Moses, then you have dealt a pretty massive blow to anyone who would believe that the Old Covenant is God's final revelation. Right? I mean, if you can show that Jesus is better than Moses, and Moses is pretty awesome, pretty cool, pretty, pretty cool dude, pretty faithful guy, if you can show that Jesus is far superior to him, then there goes the old covenant, right? And that's what he needs to do. He needs to hammer home to these Jewish believers who are so tempted to walk away from the new covenant and go back to the old covenant to show them that you're going back to nothingness. You can't turn your back on Jesus. He is counted, verse 3, of more glory than Moses. He is counted of more glory than Moses. Why on earth would you go back to Moses? Now, he doesn't exalt Christ. The author of Hebrews doesn't exalt Christ by denigrating Moses. He's very balanced in this way, and I appreciate this. He can speak very strongly about the old covenant as a covenant, but he's... He's not going to denigrate Moses. He has a very nuanced argument here. Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses, but Moses was faithful. In fact, the author here quotes from uh, Numbers 12, 7 later. He says, um, Moses, verse 5, Moses was faithful in all of God's house. And this is likely an, a, just a direct quote from Numbers 12.7. And in Numbers 12.7, that's a place where God is exalting Moses above Aaron and Miriam who were jealous of Moses because he had such high authority in Israel. They wanted a little bit of that authority. And the author of Hebrews is, listen, he was faithful and God said he was faithful and God appointed him and he had authority. He fulfilled his role well. So we don't denigrate Moses, but we do say this. We say there is a massive, if not infinite, difference between Jesus and Moses. Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. This is a devastating blow for, to anyone who tried to deconvert these Jewish believers. You, wait, you're telling me that I should go back to Moses when Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses? I ain't going back to that. That's, that's the idea here. This would have dealt a massive blow to anyone who's trying to deconvert these Jewish believers, Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses. By clinging to Moses in the Old Covenant, you are clinging to something that is less valuable in comparison to Christ. In fact, as I've already mentioned, he'll explain later in the book of Hebrews that the Old Covenant is actually 
worthless. And not worthless in the sense that you can't turn there and find important truths. You can. Wonderful, important truths about who God is and his character. And, and there's things of wisdom that you can glean from that. Oh, the Old Covenant documents. We read the Old Testament and we grow and we benefit from it. But the Old Covenant as a covenant is worthless in terms of a right relationship with God. If you go that route, you can't get right with God. You go Old Covenant route, you can't get right with God, which should tell us, again, because that Old Covenant was established by God himself, that you go any other route to get to God, it's going to end up in your condemnation, not your salvation. So it wipes out every other religion in the world. The only way to get to God is through Jesus Christ. The mediator of the New Covenant is worthy of more glory than the mediator of the Old Covenant. Well, on what basis is Jesus worthy of more glory than Moses. Moses was faithful to all of God's house. That's a reference to Israel. God had rescued Israel from Egypt. He had established them in their land, and Israel or Moses was faithful to get them almost all the way there. Joshua took over and got them in. But up to that point, Moses was faithful to get them out of Egypt, to, to, to establish the old covenant with them, to establish the laws, and so on. He was faithful over God's house. God had sent Moses in charge of this grand structure, you might say, this grand nation, this this nation which was to be an example of all the other nations with wonderful, wise laws and sacrificial systems where they could worship the living God with a cleansed uh, atone, uh, with a with atonement that had cleansed their sin away. Moses had been responsible for all of this. He was faithful to God's house. He was faithful to his calling, and it was tough. It was tough. He had to deal with some pretty miserable Israelites, let's be honest. I mean, they were, they were pretty mean, and they were complaining a lot. And he had to deal with not only idolatry, but then Aaron saying things like, I don't know what happened. I just, the gold just kind of went in the fire, and out came this golden calf. And he's like, what, what's going on, right? So he had to deal with all kinds of shenanigans and sin and grumbling. And, but he was faithful, But he was only faithful as a steward. He was only faithful as a servant. The the author makes this comparison clear. Now, Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken of later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. As a son. This is an important phrase here, as as a son. Because if you remember, God is called, or the author of Hebrews is called, Uh, Jesus, the Son of God, in chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. And what he says about that is that this Son was appointed the heir of all things, and he was the co-creator with God the Father of all things. This Son, I take this here then as an argument, and and I used to think an implicit, but more of an explicit argument for the deity of Christ here. He's saying that Moses was faithful in God's house in Israel as a servant, Jesus is faithful in God's house as a son. Why? Because he's the builder of the house, not merely the steward of it. The son is the builder of the house, not merely the steward of it. The Moses is a steward. Verse 4, for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were spoken to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house As a son. Who's that son? Well, he's the creator of all things in chapter 1. That's who that is. 
I take this to mean that Jesus is the builder of the church, whereas Moses was not the builder of Israel. He was only its servant. Both God the Father and God the Son built the universe, and both God the Father and God the Son are building the church. And Jesus says this explicitly in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, that he builds his church. So his house is built like by him. Moses didn't build Israel. He just came into it and stewarded, stewarded it for a time. Jesus is the builder. And so here's the comparison. For Jesus has been, back up to verse 3 now. Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. That's just a truism. That the famous architect is worthy of more glory than the houses that bear his name. It's just a truism. That's just the way it is. That that person who designed and brought all the resources to bear and all the drawings and all the work and engineering to bear to bring this house, this beautiful, amazing house to fruition, they are worthy of more glory than the actual house itself. And that's the argument here. Jesus built the house. Moses merely stewarded his house. Well, why is this so important to grasp? Right? Why, why do we have to wrestle through this, this theology here? Why is it so important to grasp that Jesus is over his house and he's built his house, which is the New Covenant Church, and Moses is over Israel and he was a mere steward? Well, it's because in verse 6, he's going to lay down a conditional exhortation. Immediately after he says that Jesus Christ was faithful over God's house as a son, he's now going to lay down this conditional exhortation. And it's similar to the exhortation that we'll see in verse 14 next week. But he says this, And we are his house. Okay, remember? Jesus, Jesus is the one who builds his house, his new covenant church. And we are his house. And you're like, well, yeah. You bet I am his house. I'm a Christian. I'm... I'm in the church, I'm a believer, if indeed we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting of our hope. Now, say what? Let me read it again. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting of our hope. This verb for hold fast here denotes a settled, sure, unwavering action. What he means here is if we hold fast to our hope in Christ, we can have assurance that we are part of Jesus' new covenant church. But this may be a little unnerving for some of us. I think we would have liked him to say it like this, if we're honest. We wish he would have said it like this. Because you are his house, you will hold fast to your confession and your boasting of your hope. But he doesn't say it that way, does he? We have to face what he says knowing that this is for our good. This is the word of God. God is wiser than you are, and he's wiser than I am. I, I wanted him to write it differently, okay? I'll be honest. I wish he would have written it differently, but he didn't. So we have to embrace it. We have to receive it as God's word and figure out what's going on here. A little discomfort is good for us in the Christian life. If it gets us to think according to biblical categories and not our own preconceived categories. This is the Christian life, the continual formation of our thoughts to be in accordance with God's thoughts. 
And to be a little uncomfortable, even intellectually, for a little bit, so that the shift can happen and we can be brought into a better way of thinking and a better way of feeling. And so he says it this way, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast to our confession. It's uncomfortable because it almost makes it sound like our being part of Christ's house, being saved, is up to us. And our continuing to be saved is up to us. And so it becomes a little unnerving because he does say it like this. He says, Jesus is faithful over God's house as a son and we are his house indeed if we hold fast our confidence in the boasting of our confession. He could have just said it this way. If indeed we keep believing. That's just shorthand for what he just said. We are his house if indeed we keep believing. That's why the title of the message is today, Don't Harden Your Hearts, Keep Believing. We are Christ's house if we keep believing. We are Christ's house and it's conditioned upon our continued faith. Now, to just kind of relieve some of the tension in the room I'm feeling right now, let's back up for a moment and remind ourselves, like the things that I've, I've mentioned the last several weeks, that the author of Hebrews believes wholeheartedly in the security of the believer. If you've come to Christ and you've been born again and you've trusted in the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and you've experienced that renewing and refreshing and wonderful rebirth, you can't be lost. And the author of Hebrews doesn't believe you can be lost. In chapter 6, verses 9 through 10, right after he delivered a really, really severe warning, he says this, though we speak this way, yet in your case, because we know you're probably feeling it right now, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. And then we know that he believes in the security of salvation because he says in verses 16 and 17 that God guaranteed salvation with an oath. God can't lie. This is what I've provided. This is what I've done for you. I'm securing it with an oath so that you'll have strong encouragement of hope. I won't go back on my word. I will save you. Trust in me. Why would he say that? Why would he say I'm securing it with an oath? So that you would have great encouragement and hope and keep believing. He says that we're part of the new covenant. And a major important feature of the new covenant, which is different from the old covenant, is that it can't be broken. So if you are part of the new covenant by faith in Jesus Christ and by being born again, you can't break that covenant. You can't break the, you can't, you could have broken the old covenant. You can't break the new covenant. Isn't that awesome? So the author of Hebrews will go on to argue in, in later chapters that we are part of the new covenant. And that's a covenant that can't be broken. And then he argues in chapter 10, verse 14, that Christ's sacrifice has secured eternal perfection or eternal glorification for those who presently are enjoying the sanctifying work of the Spirit. So the author of Hebrews most certainly believes in the security of salvation. And probably the most important verse in this issue is chapter 10, verse 39. And he says this, after another warning, he says, We are not those who shrink away and are destroyed. He has the confidence that genuine believers will persevere all the way to the end. He believes that salvation is secure, but there is an accent, there's an emphasis on the Christian remaining in the faith in this book. Why is that? Why would he have this accent on, especially here in verse 6, of us continuing to believe? Precisely because it ties directly into the security of our salvation. 
A secure salvation is a salvation where God keeps you believing. A secure salvation is a salvation where God keeps you believing. He keeps you repenting. He keeps you on that narrow path. Sometimes it hurts for him to do that, but he does it. And this is where a lot of Christians, I think, are confused today, which is why you see a lot of confusion over the book of Hebrews and just a lot of fumbling the interpretation of it. The security of salvation doesn't mean that a person who once professed faith can 10 or 15 or 20 years down the road just forsake Christ and leave him altogether and denounce him and walk into atheism and still go to heaven. That's not what the security of salvation means. And some teach that. That's not at all what it means. That, would be, that, that wouldn't give me any confidence. No, the security of salvation means that once you come to Christ and you are saved, God will keep you in the faith. He will keep you believing. And how does he do that? How does he keep us believing? Well, we've already talked about this, but it's worth mentioning again because it relates to this verse here in verse 14. How does he keep us believing? By giving us conditional exhortations like this. That's how he does it. That's one of the ways he does it. It's not the only way, but it's one of the ways he does it. How does our good and heavenly Father keep us in the faith, keep us believing? By putting an accent on our faith in a conditional exhortation like this one. I'll read it again. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast to our confidence and the boasting of our hope. You can have the assurance that you belong, that you are part of Christ's new covenant church as you keep believing. And every professing Christian in this congregation and outside needs to hear these words. We need to receive this exhortation. And it's this exhortation in verse 6 that actually sets the tone or sets the stage, you could say, for the rest of chapter 3. And for the next three commands we're about to see. The next, we'll see one more command today and then two more next week. The command, remember, was consider Jesus. He's more worthy of glory than Moses, worthy of far more glory because he is God the creator, the savior. Moses is a mere steward of his house, of God's house. But you are his house if you keep believing. And so now he's going to add some firepower to that statement. We need to keep believing. God is giving us the resources to do that, but, it, but we need to hear the next set of exhortations loud and clear. What's that next exhortation? What's the next commandment? It's this. It's very simple. I, didn't, I just didn't have a lot of creativity this week. I just, here it is. Do not harden your hearts. There's the exhortation. There's the command to every single Christian here today. If you are walking with the Lord in joy and happiness with a soft heart, loving the Lord, serving Him, assured of your salvation, walking in the joy and the freedom of the Holy Spirit, loving God, worshiping Him, enjoying Him in every capacity, awesome! That command's still for you. It's still for you. Don't harden your hearts. The implication, the way it says it here in verse 7, he says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, to remind us, this is not his opinion. This is drawing from the Old Testament, as we'll see in a moment. The Holy Spirit is the one who read, wrote the Old Testament. He wrote the New Testament, too. In case you didn't know that, you learned something new today. 
Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The implication is that today you could hear his voice and harden your heart. But I just described someone who's really walking with the Lord and the joy of their salvation and so on. The implication here is don't harden your heart today. Don't harden your heart to this message. Don't harden your heart later today when you're exhorted by another believer or admonished by another believer to forsake a particular sin or whatever it might be. Don't harden your hearts. That's the command. That's the command to every single Christian here. Don't harden your hearts. Scripture teaches us that the heart is the center. It's the core of who we are. Proverbs 4.24, right? Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. For the believer, it's straightforward. Don't harden your heart towards God. Do you hear his voice in the preaching of the word of God? Don't harden your heart to it. Do you hear his voice when you read scripture? Believe it. Receive it. Ask God for help to believe it. A prayer that we probably all should be praying a lot more, or maybe some of you do. I know I pray it a lot. I do believe what? Lord, help my unbelief. We're just praying that all the time. Lord, I do. I feel some hardness. Lord, help my unbelief. When it convicts you, repent. Don't delay repentance. Turn immediately. If it challenges you, change. As I've already mentioned, the implication is that you could be walking with the Lord in, in the joy of the Holy Spirit, and today when you hear His voice, you could potentially harden your heart. That's, that's the implication of this passage. So don't do that. Straightforward command. Don't harden your heart. Keep it soft. That's the seriousness of the exhortation. Well, the author is, is quoting from Psalm 95. In that psalm, God is speaking to Israel present-day Israel at the time, about a, about a previous generation, namely the wilderness generation. And this wilderness generation was to serve as an example to that present generation of what not to do. And interestingly, Israel becomes, especially that wilderness generation, they become an example of what not to do in the New Testament as well. Paul mentions that in 1 Corinthians 10, 6. Don't do what the wilderness generation did. And while same thing here, don't do what they did. Don't harden your hearts, as it says here. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as, the, as on the day of testing in the wilderness. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is the reference to that generation in the wilderness that wandered for 40 years, continuing to complain and demonstrate their unbelief as God took them out of Egypt into the wilderness. We can even turn over there to Psalm 95 briefly, if you'd like to do that. Psalm 95, verses 8 through 11. Again, the psalmist writing to present-day Israel to not be like that previous generation. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah on the day of Massa in the wilderness. When your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, they, though they have seen my work. Meribah and Massa are just two words for the same event. Meribah means quarreling. That's what uh, Moses named it. And Massa, mean, Massa means testing. The author of Hebrews just calls it the day of testing. He kind of condenses it that way. Not a problem. 
This is when Israel was going through the wilderness after they had been delivered mightily from Egypt. They're going through the wilderness now on their way to the promised land. And they are continuing to complain. I mean, just over and over and over. And this is an event, this event here in Psalm 95 is referring to the event in Exodus chapter 17. Now you can turn back a little bit back to Exodus 17. We're going to read uh, verses 1 through 7. Not a lot of comment is needed. We're just going to read it and it'll explain itself. We just need to hear what was happening. Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. Remember, recently delivered out of Egypt on their way to the promised land. God had promised this place, this land flowing with milk and honey. And they're on their way there, but it ain't going so great. There's a little bit of discomfort. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin in stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take with your, in your hand and the, the staff which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of Hor, at, at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of that place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not. Well, this is not the first time they had complained. They actually had complained in Exodus 15, 22 through 25 about water. And then they had complained again in Exodus 16 about how bad it was in the wilderness and how badly they wanted to go back to Egypt. But this isn't just some mere complaining like our kids in the back seat saying, we're going to be there yet. I don't want, I'm, just, I'm tired. I'm hungry. Where are we going to eat? I mean, we had our kids asking that on our road trip occasionally this last summer. Like, I'm hungry. I'm hungry. That's not what this is. This is rooted in, in pretty wicked unbelief. And I don't use that word wicked lightly, just throwing it around. This is, this is pretty bad stuff. Because God had delivered them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, uh, arm out of Israel, out of a place of bondage where they were being, being treated so badly that they are constantly crying out to God to rescue them. And their cries finally made their way up to God. God had rescued them from an oppressive Egyptian pharaoh and now they're complaining and angry with God because they didn't believe that God was working everything together for their good. They didn't believe that God cared for them. They are actually starting to believe that God despised and hated them because of the trouble they were experiencing. And so what's happening is their hardening is happening here because they're not seeing the love that God has for them and caring for them and bringing them out of Egypt and promising them a land flowing with milk and honey. They were tired and thirsty and they were no longer willing to suffer before they entered into their glory. Sound familiar? But from the very beginning, God had promised to deliver them into a land of abundance. 
Listen to Exodus 3.16. This is when God first told Moses, this is what you're going to do. You're going to deliver my people. And then, quote, go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, appeared to me saying, I have observed you in what has been done in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you out of the affliction of Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, into, into a land flowing with milk and honey. But this generation in the wilderness was not believing that promise. They, they valued immediate and temporary physical comfort over the promise of a permanent land to call their own. They couldn't see with faith that permanent land, so they wanted immediate and, and temporary physical comfort rather than a rich and lush land flowing with abundant and enjoyable resources. They were not believing in the future promise of an inheritance. They were not valuing God's presence among them. Their hearts were fixed on immediate and temporal desires rather than God's presence and God's promise. You sound familiar? They were unwilling to bear the cross before they wore the crown in the promised land. But I want to just step back for a moment before we bridge from that wilderness generation over to us. Because I think it'd be really quick, easy to just jump over. Okay? But we can't do that without Jesus. So let's just take a brief detour. You know, sometimes you see the detour sign, you're like, oh, brother. Really? I got to get to work. But if that detour takes you through a beautiful, scenic vista, you're like, that was worth it. Okay? So let's just take a one-minute detour here, okay? Israel was unwilling to bear the cross before they wore the crown. Jesus was willing to do precisely that, wasn't he? And that's exactly how we should read the temptations of Jesus. When Jesus was tempted to grumble and grasp for provision that God had not provided, Jesus believed God and valued God's word over immediate physical gratification. What did he say? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That actually is from Deuteronomy 8, believe it or not. And that is in a verse where God is explaining to the wilderness generation that he let them wander in the wilderness so that they might learn to not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from God's mouth. Did they pass the test? No, but Jesus did. That's what that temptation is all about. Jesus did what Israel could not do and what they did not do. Then, when he was tempted to prove his deity by some sensational act like throwing himself off a building, he said, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Sound familiar? That's a quote from Deuteronomy 6.16, where it says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as they tested him at Massah. (laughs) We We just read about that in Exodus 17. When tempted to give up worshiping God and take an easier path to get his rightful inheritance... Namely, all the kingdoms of the world. Jesus said, you shall, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. That is a quote from Deuteronomy 6.13 right after that statement, or I'm sorry, right before that statement about Massah. Do you see what's happening here? you see what's going on here? Jesus did what Israel could not do. Jesus did what you could not do. He fulfills all righteousness. He survives all the temptations. He comes out on top. That's why the author of Hebrews can say that Christ was faithful over God's house as a son. Moses, he was faithful, but he was also sinful. What do we learn about 
Moses. He didn't get to enter the promised land. Interestingly, Moses committed a sin in another incident of Israel complaining about water. I mean, it all fits together. It's pretty remarkable. He's not perfect, but Jesus is. Moses sins, Jesus doesn't. Moses, though a great leader, is not nearly worthy of the glory that the Son has because the Son is without sin. The Son does what we could not do. He does what Israel could not do. And which is why we are commanded, therefore, to hold fast to our confession of our faith in Jesus Christ. Tempted yet without sin, able to come to the rescue of those who are tempted sorely to come off that path of obedience. Why? Why do we need to consider Jesus? Because we need to continue to believe so that our hearts are not hardened. Because if we harden our hearts and turn away from Jesus, we will face the same destiny as that generation in the wilderness. He says... They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. I swore my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. For Israel, that rest was the promised land. But as the author of Hebrews will show in chapter 4, that rest was actually symbolic of the future rest that believers will have in the eternal state. Hebrews 4, 9 through 10. For if Joshua had not given them rest, God would have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains... A Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. That rest for Israel was a promised land. That rest for us is the eternal state. The warning to professing Christians then is to not harden your hearts and incur incur God's anger and displeasure and fail to enter his rest. And that is hard for us to hear. But it's exactly hearing it that will get you to enter that final rest. It's hard to hear the command to not harden your hearts. It's hard to hear the command to not harden your hearts or you won't inherit that final inheritance. It's hard to hear, but it's precisely that warning that gets you into that final rest. So hear it. Hear it today. Do not harden your hearts. And there are some people here today I know are presently in the hardening process. Right now, Either starting this week or several months ago, the hardening process has started. And the warning today, hopefully, will be an exhortation to break through that stone that you put in place. That has begun to be built up so that the spirit can get back to that softness of heart. So that you will not fail to enter that rest. But there is a hardening process. What's going on? You're becoming cold and indifferent towards God. The word is no longer a delight to you. Worship is a burden to you. You get frustrated with religious devotion. You are more and more entertaining and indulging in sin and frivolity. A love for money is beginning to douse your passion for Christ. You are holding fast to an immoral relationship even though you know what Scripture says about sexual purity. You're in the throes of a hardening process. And the warning to you today, I hope, is a loving and effective warning. Do not harden your hearts as they did in the wilderness. Providential circumstances have dealt you a tough blow and you're becoming angry with God because you're not getting what you think you should get out of life. That's a hardening process. And the warning today is, do not, if you hear his voice today, do not harden your hearts. Do not continue that path of hardening. 
See, the, wil- the wilderness generation didn't understand that they must bear a cross before they bear a crown. They did not understand that they must suffer before they enter into glory. They didn't like that idea that a little suffering comes before an eternity of glory. They didn't like that. They valued immediate temporal solutions and gratification over a permanent inheritance. They wanted earthly pleasure more than they wanted God. Therefore, they didn't believe God's promise of a future inheritance, right? And their hearts were hardened in unbelief and they fell in the wilderness. The call to us today is to not harden our hearts. The the call today is to keep believing. The call today is to keep our eyes on that future inheritance. The call to us today is to value God's present over pleasant providential experiences. I hope this is a, you hear this as a loving word from from scripture. This is not mean. This is not mean. This is the word that God has designed to keep you believing. Sometimes we got to hear the strong exhortation to keep believing, and here it is. We are his house if we hold fast our confession and our boasting of our hope. If you yield to this word, you will find God break through and smash the hardness that has been established and he'll come and he'll renew and he'll refresh you and you'll have more joy in your heart than when their grain and new wine abound as the psalmist says in psalm 4 this command is to enable you to keep holding on to your confession that's what it's meant to do to enable you to keep believing is your heart presently soft towards god praise the lord praise the lord keep it soft do whatever you can to keep it soft you know the christian life is a fight it's not a walk in the park. It's a fight to keep believing. It's a fight to keep the heart soft. You've got to fight every day. We've got to get up in the morning and pray to God, I believe, help my unbelief. We've got to put aside sin. We have to surround ourselves with people who tell us what we need to hear, not what we want to hear. We need to maintain fellowship at church. We need to be in the word of God. We need to hear the preaching. We need to set aside the, the frivolity. We need to keep our hearts soft. Labor to keep believing. And so this is an exhortation for your own heart today, believer. Next week will be an exhortation and an instruction to watch out for one another. We all have a role to play in this process. My perseverance depends on you, and your perseverance depends on me, and our perseverance depends on each other. We need to look out for each other, and that's what we're going to focus on next week. So let's pray right now and ask the Lord to keep our hearts soft and to receive this exhortation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the tough words because they create soft hearts. And so I pray for anyone out there today who is presently in the throes of a hardening process. That your gracious and wonderful spirit would touch them break through, give them grace to keep believing, to repent, to turn from their sin and give them great joy in their journey. I pray that all of us would hear this word of exhortation, that all of us here today would see each other someday in the new heavens and new earth because we have all persevered to the end, trusting in your promises, a promise to keep us secure, but a promise that keeps us secure by keeping us believing with tough exhortations. Help us receive it today and then enjoy the wonderful joy of walking in faith and repentance. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, 
please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.